Jesus changes everything. Say that with me. Jesus changes everything, and he wants to save everyone everywhere. Say those two words. Everyone everywhere. One more time. Everyone everywhere. That really is his heart. It's not his will that any should perish, but all come to repentance. But here's the problem. He's actually given us the task of being the ones who communicate this gospel truth, this good news, euangelion. That's what our responsibility and calling is as we are sent. We're not just sent to, to please ourselves, to live for ourselves on this mission. We're actually sent, as we've been learning through the book of Acts, to surrender. We're sent to surrender and to introduce other people to Jesus. Now, last Sunday, we were in Acts 16, and we talked about divine appointments and how the apostle Paul wanted to go uh, somewhere and tell the truth in a place that God said no. He prevented him, the Holy Spirit prevented Paul from going where he thought he needed to go to say the right thing. And even with the right motivation, God said, no, he had a woman named Lydia, the first European convert to Christianity. And then a Philippian jailer was his target audience, but he had to actually be drugged through the street and beaten with rods to get in the place where he could stand on the stage to be heard by the person God wanted him to share the gospel with. So here's the thing. We're all sent, but the problem is we don't usually want to go where God is sending. And then even when we go where God is sending, we don't always know exactly how to share his truth in an effective way. Now, some people could get into a debate about sovereignty of God, and I'm not going to waste any time on that debate because here's what I want you to hear. The fact of the matter is, our, our acknowledgement that we have a responsibility to share things in a particular way does not diminish or take away the sovereignty of God. That would be silly to think that. So here's the thing. God has called us in his sovereignty to be responsible with this gospel truth. And so it's not just saying the right thing that matters. It's saying the right thing in the right way. Um, we all know when we have had opportunity to tell someone the truth and we've chosen not to because uh, we had fear that we might offend them or we might uh, be perceived as being rude. Um, recently, I was at uh, Emmy's uh, award ceremony at Fountain Inn High School and, and uh, we were on our way out to the car afterwards and everybody's families kind of gathering around, walked to the car. And I saw this lady walking with her family and her shirt was inside out. You ever, you ever go to work all day long? This woman undoubtedly all day long, but the tag was on the outside. I don't think it was on purpose. I mean, she was like 60, so I doubt it. You know what I'm saying? So she had a tag on the outside. Ask me, did I go tell her? No, I did not. And, and there's multiple reasons why. It's just a little awkward to go up to a woman I don't know, tap her on the shoulder and say, hey, you've had your shirt inside out all day long. That would have been weird, right? And so I was reluctant to tell her the truth for multiple reasons. One is I don't know her. Um, I, don't, I wouldn't say I don't care about her because I care about everybody. I mean, you should, right? So we love people. But I, I, I don't know her well enough, and I thought she might perceive me to be rude or nosy or just whatever, you know, any number of things. So I didn't tell her the truth that I knew to be a fact because of my fear like that. Uh, how many of y'all have ever had something gross in your teeth, man, and nobody told you? Yeah, you've been there, right? Uh, what about your, you ever had, this is so awkward, right? But you ever forgot to zip up your pants? And nobody told you? That's miserable, right? That's like miserable. Um, there, there's a lot of examples. I, I was out in the hall 
uh, in between services, one of the senior adult ladies said, I was at the movies with my grandchildren and, uh, and, and I didn't know until about halfway over the lobby that I had toilet paper stuck to my shoe. That's humiliating, right? And so we've all been in situations where there, there was something wrong, nobody told us. There, there's, and here's, here's what I, I kind of, I think is so simple. But you know who usually tells you things that you need to know like that? The people who love you the most. So my wife <laughs> does not mind offending me by saying, you got something green in your teeth, baby, you know? She's not going to feel weird about saying, hey, I don't want you to look like a fool and go out with this uh, uh, unawareness of something that, that uh, would be embarrassing. So she speaks truth to me. The people who speak truth to you love you the most. And, and see, this is what's so weird in our culture. We have bought into the lie that it's rude to be truthful. And, and I think part of why we've bought into that lie is because a lot of people are telling the truth <laughs> in a very rude way, right? There's a lot of people saying the right thing the wrong way, and so it causes the culture to think it's the truth that is the problem when it's really the messenger who is the problem. And so with that, that kind of introduces us to Acts 17 where the apostle Paul is speaking truth in an environment that's hostile. It's not a, it's not a, a great environment in the sense it was open-minded. The Greek culture in Athens, this is contextually on the Areopagus. If you've ever seen the pictures of Athens, that old structure on the top of that hill is the Areopagus. And so Paul was there and he was, he was speaking to all of these, these thinkers, these, these uh, men of their times that were philosophers and they were religious men, but they had a belief in pretty much anything possible. Everything goes, this plethora of gods. And so Paul standing in their midst actually has a choice. It's the same choice that you and I have every day. We all have the same choice. We may not be on a stage the way that Paul was in this moment where he was being heard by many, but we all have the same choice. Do I speak the truth or do I hold back? Do I, do I, do I, uh, do I allow the concern that I would have of how I'm going to be received to prevent me from speaking the truth? Or do I actually love the people who are hearing enough to risk my own reputation, to risk being called a fool, to risk being considered rude or hateful? That's really the question all of us have to answer every moment of every day. So look with me, if you will, Acts chapter 17 and verse 22. Here's the fact. We all have opportunities to speak the truth. All of us have opportunities to speak the truth. The question is, how will we respond when those opportunities come? Look at verse 22, Acts 17. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. You guys never miss church. <laughs> For I, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul, in a very real sense, this is super important. We're supposed to try to learn today. How do we communicate the truth of God's word? 
How do we communicate a gospel truth in a world that doesn't want to hear it, in a world that's already skeptical of what we believe? And I think Paul's approach is very intentional. It's very strategic. He actually thinks through, how can I most effectively communicate this truth so that these men will listen and hear and receive the truth of God's word? That's so foreign from the way we share the gospel nowadays, but that's what Paul does. And so Paul doesn't compromise the truth, he doesn't pull back the truth, but he also shares it in a way that's relevant to the people hearing and in a way they will understand. So here's the first thing we're going to see as we walk through chapter 17, is that everyone's looking for God. The first thing there, everyone's looking for God. Now you may say, wait a minute, that's not true. I mean, there's a percentage of people who don't even believe in God. And I would say what I mean by everyone's looking for God is that everyone is looking for the satisfaction that God alone can, can provide. Everyone. Every man on your street, every woman in your class, every person in your family, everyone at the cookout you're going to attend July 4th, they all are in search of God. They're looking for God. They're wanting satisfaction that he alone can bring. And so every man is looking for God. And the reason why it's kind of puzzling, why we have trouble sometimes finding God, is because he's really big, right? He's actually easy to find because God is so huge. Evidence for God is literally everywhere. In fact, we could spend an hour talking about, from an apologetics perspective, the evidence for God is overwhelming. If we just think about uh, the reasonableness of believing in God, it's, it's like, it's like overwhelmingly supportive. And so with that, I know that we listen to the culture and people want to push back. And oftentimes we hear something, we read something in a blog and we think if it's on Google, it's true. Or maybe a professor at the university said it. And so if he's got a PhD, he's got to be smarter than you. I mean, there's all kinds of influences and, and concepts we just believe to be true that are false. They're not necessarily true. And so with that, we understand that there is a God who is easy to find. And the reason he's easy to find is because evidence for him is everywhere. We see evidence in creation, the vastness of the universe. We sense his presence by the conscience that we possess and the emotional fortitude that we have. We even logically assume that God is real by means of philosophical reasoning. All of these things, all three of those categories are separate from theological belief based on the Bible. Those are just general revelations of God. We have been wired to believe in God. We've been wired to look for a God to fill the void that's inside this heart. And and here's what we do. I mean, in the world, before Christ, and sometimes even many of us, if not all of us, after Christ... We forget that the things, the physical things in this world cannot satisfy spiritual longing in our soul. But we try to stuff physical things in there to satisfy, to, to fill the void, and it doesn't work. And so with that, we understand what we're saying. Generally speaking, everybody is looking for God. He is a big God, and he's not hard to find. But then Paul assumes um, some evidences. Look at verse 24. Verse 24, he said, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. I mean, this is God we're talking about. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
Uh, Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places. Here's what he's saying. God's sovereign. He ultimately has determined all of that. We may think we're doing that, but ultimately he's the one who's in charge. Look at verse 27, that they should seek him, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And so Paul is actually in some ways acknowledging the legitimacy of them putting this plaque up that says the unknown God. He says, look, there's a reason you're still looking because all of the gods you think will satisfy are insufficient. They're they're incomplete. You're still looking because you're still longing for the one that can actually satisfy. I want you to look at the end of verse 27. He said, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. He's not hard to find. God is big. He's not hard to find. You've got all these statues, got all these icons. You've got all these expectations and preconceived notions. You're listening to so many voices in the culture who are telling you this about God and that about God. And and Paul said, look, he is actually not far from you. He is close to you. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. He's using cultural relevance that they can understand to to strategically communicate the gospel. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He's he's basically saying, guys, all these statues you've got, all these gods you're believing in, do you really think you want to believe in a God you can create? Do you you want to think of a, do you want to believe in a God that you can make up and and just say, hey, we're just going to believe in all these gods? He's saying, that's not a God. That's a statue. That's not a God. That's an icon. And so he easily says to them and naturally says, man, God is so big. He wants you to know him. He is, he is unimaginable, yet he's knowable. Now, this is a, a paradox about God. How can God be both unimaginable but knowable? That seems to be somewhat of a contradiction. How can it be so big you can't even wrap your mind around him, but yet you can know him personally? This is, imagine, uh, this is amazing, but it's actually, it, it helps us understand in, in systematic terms. Theologically speaking, there are two words that we use to describe this. And that is transcendence and eminence. That, that may not be something that you're like, oh, wow, the light bulb goes off. But I, you might want to write those words down because they're helpful for us framing and understanding who God is. These two theological terms teach us a lot. God is both transcendent over and imminent in his world. So he is over all, but he's also intimately involved. He is big in transcendence, yet he is able to indwell believers in his eminence. He is in the farthest corner of the galaxy, transcendent. And at the same time, he is as close as your breath eminence. God is both larger than life, beyond comprehension, and he is intimately aware of every single need you have. That obsessive thought that you've been unable to get off your mind for the last four days, God is aware of it. He knows your need. He knows your concern. He knows your fear, even though he's the one who made everything. This is so amazing. He's unimaginable, 
yet he is knowable. This is the God that we believe in. And Paul is trying to communicate this to these men. The scripture we're reading teaches much about man's search for God. And we've stated that uh, everyone is looking for God. But consider this, just because you're looking for something doesn't mean you know what you're looking for. Just because you're looking for something doesn't mean you know what you're looking for. You may say, what are you talking about, Wayne? Every husband knows this who's gone shopping with his wife, amen? Because you can, I just, I know what I'm looking for. I, 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 I'll just know it when I see it. Y'all ever heard? Is that just my wife? I, I don't know exactly, but I'm looking for it. I know what I'm looking for. I just don't know what it is, you know? I know what I'm looking for. I don't know where I'll find it. It might be the loft. It might be J.G. It might be Belk or Macy's. We're just going to have to visit all the stores, right? And so it's, it's possible to be looking for something and not even know what you're, <laughs> what you're looking for. It's possible. And you may be looking for something and not even know where to find it. That is how the people who live in your community are looking for God. They are looking for God, all right? But, but some of them have no idea who he is. Not even, in fact, they've almost convinced themselves there's no way that God can be the God we worship because of the people who declare him to be true. It, it, it could be that so many people in our culture who call themselves Christians are saying the right thing the wrong way that it's pushing people further away from the truth that Christ wants us to share with them. So it's possible to be looking for something, have no idea what you're looking for, and not even know where to find it. And that's exactly what we're facing today. I think there's another very important foundational concept we've got to admit. Failing to find something you need doesn't change the fact you need it. So all of the people, again, in our community, why is our mission statement to connect people in the upstate with Jesus to change their world? Because we believe everybody everywhere is a target of God's grace. Everyone everywhere needs to be saved. God desires, I firmly believe this, God truly desires that no man should perish but that all should come to repentance. He wants everyone everywhere to come to faith in him. And so if that's the truth, then how can people fail? And even when they, when they fail, can't we just say, man, if someone fails to actually um, uh, know God is God, I mean, that, that doesn't affect them, right? I mean, it doesn't affect them if they don't know he's really God. I Sure, I could understand if, if we recognize, okay, God is, is really God and Jesus is his son. He died for me on the cross and I'm rejecting that. Sure, that person shouldn't go to heaven. But what about the person who just doesn't really know that God is real and that Jesus is the savior of the world? Surely that person shouldn't be responsible. And we would, might, might would say, well, failing to find something you need, man, it doesn't necessarily mean you're responsible. But failing to find something you need doesn't change the fact you need it. The truth of the matter is, let's say you came to church today but you forgot or couldn't find your deodorant. You will soon be aware of your need for deodorant. Amen? It's true. If you're not aware of it, everyone around you will know. But they may not tell you the truth. <laughs> but but it, your, your failure to know the truth or find the truth does not 
does not mean it's not still true. It doesn't mean you don't still need it. And so with that, look, everyone is looking for God. But then secondly, I want you to see people need the truth about God. They need it. They need the gospel. They need the message you have. But here's the thing. They don't need the message you have oftentimes in the way you speak it. They don't just need the truth. They need the truth communicated in the right way. Grace and truth. This is what Jesus is described at. John chapter 1 verse 14. He was full of grace and truth. He was full of both. So should we. So as we communicate the truth of the gospel that is unchanging, and it doesn't matter if I agree with it or not, it's unchanging. But as we communicate this unchanging truth, we do so in love and with grace, remembering that we, we were and we are sinners just like everyone else. Look at verse 30. People need the truth about God. Paul said the times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere. Everyone everywhere. Say that again. Everyone everywhere. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. And then it goes on to say, by, by a man whom he is appointed, speaking of Jesus, and, and this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, it's so tempting in our day, guys, to choose the really uh, attractive part of the gospel and to share that. Jesus loves, Jesus cares, Jesus died for you. I don't know many Christians that aren't willing to share that Jesus loves you, that he cares for you, that he offers grace. All of those things are super attractive to a lost world. But if you share just that part and you don't share the expectation and, and requirement of repentance, you've communicated an incomplete gospel. So you can say all day long, God is filled with grace and love, period. Carry on. And, and you've not helped anybody out. You're not showing them the, the, the food in their teeth, right? You're not giving them the truth. You're not, and look, by doing this incomplete communication of the gospel, you are not showing them you love them. Loving them would be telling them the truth. And so, again, who's going to tell you the truth? The people love you the most. We've allowed the culture to twist everything up, man. And I'm, I'm the world's worst. I don't want you to think somehow I'm trying to tell y'all something that I've got figured out. I'm convicted that we have allowed our fear of rejection, we've allowed our, our fear of being perceived as rude, our fear of, of being labeled a radical, we've allowed all of that fear to isolate us from the stage to speak the truth of God in love. And, and so as a result of silent Christians who actually would share the truth in grace, the only Christians who are heard in this culture are people who are willing to say the right thing the wrong way. And so the, the media and, and the culture sees Christians as hateful, sees Christians as hypocrites, sees Christians as Pharisees, self-righteous jerks who believe in a religion that's filled with self-righteousness and not humility. So what's the answer? We've got to start speaking the truth in grace. We need to be the alternative 
to legalism and liberalism. We need to be the alternative that is firmly centered on the unchanging word of God. That's what people desperately need. They need the truth about God. So what is the truth? Everyone everywhere must repent of their sin. Now here's the thing. People I could hear immediately say, well, Wayne, people are just not going to listen to that today. If you use the word repent, your church will decline. And look, I'd first say, our church is not declining. And we're speaking the truth. We're just speaking the truth in a very Jesus Christ-centered, loving way. We're not hating people with the truth. And so I don't believe that for a minute. People say, oh, the world's just so turned against God. Are they? Yes. Is there a percentage of people who no matter what you share with them, they'll reject Jesus? Yes. I, I agree with that. But, but I will never believe that a majority of, of un, a majority of unbelievers will automatically reject, reject the truth if you communicate it in love. I believe how you communicate the truth matters. And most of the reason why the world is turning against Christ and the church is because the church is not a good representative of Jesus Christ who died for their sins. So with all of that, y'all are awful quiet today. I'm preaching to myself, all right? But here's what I would say. If somebody says, Wayne, people just don't want to hear that. Repent. And they, they, they won't come to church if we tell them the truth. <laughs> Listen, what, what, if, what if you went to the doctor? And this is just how unreasonable that statement would be. Let's say you go to the doctor, you're having chest pains, and the doctor says, well, we've ran some tests. You're in desperate need of open heart surgery. We're going to have to cut your chest open and fix your heart. Now, that, that's a layman's way of <laughs> talking about open heart surgery. But that's what they do, right? And what if, what, if, what if you said, you know, first, let me say thank you for your concern about my heart. And I really appreciate your suggestion of open heart surgery. But is there an option that doesn't involve you cutting my chest open and fixing my heart? Could, could we possibly try an alternative method of treatment? I'm thinking marshmallows and gummy bears. Because I like marshmallows and gummy bears. I think they're great. And I mean, I really, I like gummy bears better than marshmallows. But I would go with both if that was the heart treatment. So, so doctor... Is there any way I can just take that treatment? Because I think that treatment is what would be most effective in my case. This is what I, this is my truth. <laughs> this is what I think is true. I need marshmallows and gummy bears. I know what you're saying, and I'm not even saying you're wrong for you. So what if the doctor says, okay, hey, you know what? I'm open-minded. Um, as long as you pay me, I will give you a treatment with marshmallows and gummy bears. And I'm going to say, hey, take this many marshmallows and gummy bears every day for 30 days, and we'll call it a wash. You're good. You're good. I'm good. Everybody's okay. You know what? Eating marshmallows and gummy bears would not fix the heart, and the patient would die. All the while doing what they thought was true or right or what they wanted to do. That's absurd. That's silly. But that is the logic of people saying, well, I know, I know that the Bible says we need to repent, but, but I want you to know I, my sin's different. My, don't even call this sin. Let's just be real. I mean, I don't think it's sin. I know the Bible says, I know Christians say, but I'm just telling you, to me, it's not sin. And so therefore, here's the deal. Christians who would say, okay, marshmallows and gummy bears it is. That's not loving. That's 
hatred to allow someone you say you love to die and go to hell? No, God forbid. So it's not okay just to act, act like everybody's okay, but it's also not okay to hate people. And I think this is where the text is so revealing because he says all people everywhere, guys, must repent. You know, the best medicine for people who don't want you to talk about their sin, the best opener for you to have a bridge to walk across, to tell people that you love them and, and they need to turn from their sin, is when you acknowledge and admit to them that you're a sinner too. All people everywhere includes me. All people everywhere includes me. I, I'm a sinner. I was a sinner and I am a sinner today. Saved by the grace of God. You know why a lost and dying world doesn't want to hear you talk about and me talk about repentance? Because they think we think we're already perfect. They think we don't need anything. We think we're self-righteous. We think we're, we're just like these perfect people who've got it all together. And we're looking down our nose and condemning them in their sin. If we had a heart for acknowledging that the call of repentance is to all people everywhere. That I, I'm a sinner too. And I turned from sin at salvation. And, and look, every day I'm having to be crucified with Christ. Every day I'm having to die to my sin and self. Change your perspective. Let's change our, our, our presentation of the truth. It is the same truth. But you can say the right thing the wrong way. And I want to encourage you today to speak the truth in grace and love. Our dislike of the treatment doesn't change the fact that we need the surgery. And so just because someone doesn't like the truth of the gospel, it doesn't mean they don't need it. So we must continue to speak the truth. But then also, just finally, I want to share this as a foundational thought as we think about those who are lost and maybe we would say rejecting the truth. We can't blame the lost for not believing a gospel that we haven't shared with them. And there's so many of us that want to get on a high horse and talk about how bad the world is. I mean, we've got plenty of examples, plenty of articles we could turn to, all right? There's plenty of public examples of how the world hates Jesus and now hates you because of, because of your stand for him. But here's what I'm saying. You, you can't blame the lost for not believing a gospel that you haven't shared with them. Speak the truth. Speak the truth, even when it's difficult. Because here's the thing, every man responds to God differently. Every man responds to God differently. Some people are going to immediately reject you and call you a fool. Some people are going to say, I'm leaning in. I'm listening to what you're saying. I'm not convinced, but I'm open-minded. I'm going to hear you again. And then there's other people who will believe immediately. We see this in the text. Look at verse 32. After Paul had shared says, now when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked Paul, but others said, we're going to hear you again about this. Then verse 33, Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Everybody responds to the gospel differently. And I would say even in their own time and in their own way. Now, here's the thing. If they don't respond before they die, they don't go to heaven. I mean, you can make that you could say it with marshmallows if you want to, but it's not true. The facts are the facts. Everyone everywhere must repent. 
And so here's the thing we have to remember when we're sharing the gospel. Someone may mock you and then later come to faith in Christ. Someone may lean in and want to hear more and have a conversation. And others will believe immediately. There are times when our witness is an example lived out before men. Just a simple testimony of living a godly life. There's other times when your witness is a, a quick connection and passing at the grocery store, at the job, at school. There's other times your witness is an investment of a long conversation that causes you to cancel other appointments to actually care about someone long enough to, to talk with them. There are other times your witness is a sacrifice of life and time and energy in an ongoing relationship where you actually care for them and demonstrate that in the decisions that you make with your schedule. And then there are other times when your witness is a bold statement made at risk of rejection. And here's the truth. Not all of us are going to be on a stage like Paul was at the Areopagus, but we all are given an opportunity to have a voice. This last week... Um, we were able to celebrate uh, Lydia Owens, among others in our, our church who were awarded and, and recognized for their academic achievement. Lydia was her valedictorian at Woodmont High School and the class president of her senior class. So cool. And uh, Lydia was given an opportunity to have a stage. By the way, Lydia's right over here today. And uh, she was given an opportunity to have a stage, a, a voice, three and a half minutes that she had to speak. Now, here's the thing. When she was given that choice, she could have said any number of things. She could have said all day long things that wouldn't have been very clear about things that are in our teeth or, or toilet paper on our shoe or whatever. She didn't have to speak the truth. She could have been very, uh, I guess you could say, PR. You could be politically correct and make sure that nobody's offended. Uh, you could give them marshmallows and gummy bears. Lydia did not do that. Lydia, in the most gracious tone and filled with love, spoke the truth of the gospel to thousands of people who were present at her graduation. And then in addition to that, now her video going like absolutely nuts in the last couple of days, over 50,000 people on just the social media platforms I counted, over 50,000 people have seen this three and a half minute video I want to share with you. Check out what it looks like to be a witness for Jesus. Good morning and welcome graduates, families, friends, and the Wilmot High School faculty and staff. My name is Lydia Owens, and I'm honored to be your valedictorian and senior class president. Today, I wanna to share with you a lesson that I've learned about success. Ever since I can remember, I have always wrestled with perfectionism. I would spend numerous days and nights putting my schoolwork over everything else in my life, and I placed my value in my academic achievements. I believed I was only good enough if I made an A on every assignment because to me, Success meant being perfect. As we begin this next chapter of our lives, I want you to consider what success means to you. Is success attending your dream college or getting your dream job? Is success having a lot of money or a lot of friends? When you decide what success means to you, understand that the things you will accomplish in your lifetime do have value. However, your successes are not what make you valuable because you are so much more than how well you perform. If you place your identity in what you accomplish and you believe that you're only good enough if you succeed, what happens when you fail? What happens when you don't get into your dream college or you don't get your dream job? What happens when you don't have a lot of money or you don't have a lot of friends? Placing your identity in the things of this world will disappoint you because they are only temporary. I had that reality check almost two years ago when my mom passed away. 
When tragedy struck my life, it was not my grades nor my accomplishments that helped me navigate through that loss. When everything else in my life felt uncertain, the only person that I could depend on to say the same was Jesus. My perspective of success drastically changed because I realized that the many years I spent placing my worth in my academics meant absolutely nothing in light of eternity. Speaking from my experience, constantly striving to be perfect has never satisfied me. But what does satisfy me is knowing that my worth is not found in my successes or my failures. My worth and your worth is found in Jesus because he is the only one who will ever satisfy us. No matter what your future holds, please remember that life is so much more than how successful you are. Even if you accomplish all of your dreams or none of them at all, you are still valuable and you are still good enough because you are made in the image of God. You don't have to worry about whether or not you'll be successful because God promises that his grace is sufficient for us and that his power is made perfect in our weaknesses. Now, I want to give you an opportunity to take a deep breath, forget about the future for a second, and realize that you've made it to this moment. Look at your classmates, your teachers, your friends, and your families. They are here to support you because you've reached a huge milestone in your life. Today, you are graduating, and I know we all have different definitions of success, but we've made it through 13 years of education. And to me, I think that makes us pretty successful. Thank you. Look, uh, the fact of the matter is, um not everybody in this room is going to stand in front of thousands of people or have the opportunity to share speech like that. Let's be honest. Half of us can't spell valedictorian. Amen? So uh, I tried, and I, had, I need to spell check. <clears throat> but you all have a stage. You all have a voice. Lydia had choices. Lydia could have done the easy thing. She could have mind, minded her own business and been PC or popular with everybody. She spoke the truth in love because she really loves the people she was speaking to. If you don't love people, don't share truth with them. Ignore the problem and let them keep eating marshmallows and gummy bears. But if you really love them, if you really care about the eternity of your friends and your family and your coworkers and the people you don't even know in the grocery line, then be Jesus to them. Don't say the right thing the wrong way. Represent him well. Speak truth in love. Lord, we love you. God, I'm so grateful for your word. And I know, Lord, we don't all have equal opportunities and we don't have the same size stages. We're all different opportunities, different avenues. But God, we all have a voice. We all have a stage. God, would you help us make commitments to be the voice our friends and family need? God, even move us to action today so that we would really commit our lives to you and be the witness you've called us to be, we pray. In Jesus' name, would you stand?